welcome to Education, Technology, Society, a podcast about education in the digital age. Welcome to Education, Technology, Society, a podcast about education in the digital age. Hello and welcome to Education, Technology and Society, a podcast where we discuss everything around digital education, education futures and education technology from a deliberately critical perspective. Now today we're talking about AI and education, but with a twist. I caught up with Dr Jeremy Knox from his new offices in Oxford University to talk to him about AI and education in China. Jeremy wrote a really good book earlier on in 2023 with Routledge Press called AI and Education in China, Imagining the Future, Excavating the Past. And he provides a really interesting take on the hype around AI and education in China, debunking a lot of the myths and pointing out what's actually going on and what's a fascinating but perhaps far less fantastical case study of how AI is being developed. This was a genuinely fascinating conversation. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. Enjoy. So if we're talking about China and edtech, there's heaps to talk about. And these things can often pass us by. Can you remind us, though, what are the main recurring aspects of Western hype around China, AI and education? What are the stories that the West tells itself about what's going on in China? Well, I think there tends to be an assumption that quite dramatic AI is being deployed universally across the country, across China. Um, There's an example of a story picked up uh, by the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago with pictures of young children with uh, headsets, with EEG scanners using AI to supposedly indicate concentration levels among these uh, students. And there's been various other stories around things like facial recognition, posture recognition through AI in the classroom. Um, So certainly the technology like that is being experimented with, but I would say mostly in quite specific sites rather than across the country as a whole. And I would certainly, in my understanding, not with a huge amount of success. Um, the EEG example was one that didn't last very long mm. um, because the technology didn't work particularly well and the school weren't particularly happy with it and also because there was a bit of a backlash from, from parents. I remember those pictures and you still see them now of the kids with the headbands. And I think it's really interesting you mentioned pushback from parents. So presumably this isn't something that everyone's completely bought into. Exactly. I think that sort of links to the assumptions, I think, that um, impact why an article like that gained so much traction in the West. Mm. Um, And I think those sorts of articles do because we're sort of predisposed to think about China in particular ways. We think of the education system as being quite brutal and competitive. So we're sort of inclined to see AI or be interested in AI that kind of reflects that very harsh deployment of AI. Um, I think we tend to see Chinese students, as you mentioned, as quite passive, uh, very acquiescent in terms of new technologies being being imposed upon them. Um, and we often, I think, more broadly tend to position China as quite a threatening other. You know, yeah. It's been going on for quite a long time, dating right back to the, the 19th century in, in, uh, from a European kind of perspective, but much more recently through suggestions of this new cold war between the US and China where AI is playing this sort of very prominent role. So I think we're quite predisposed to seeing AI over there as much more suspicious and underhanded. There's grains of truth across those assumptions, but I think they largely miss a much more complex picture, which I think is much more about variance across the country than 
than uniformity. And those are some of the things I tried to capture in the book. Yeah, I mean, the book is a fascinating insight. And I wanted to go through kind of stage by stage. And you try and develop a more realistic and nuanced analysis. And first off is the role of the state and government. I guess in the West, many people will point to you know what they see as China's national AI strategies and plans around AI, attempting to become an AI superpower, as you said. How are these national strategies and action plans evident in education and AI? And to what extent is this a new thing or I mean, simply a continuation of historical education reforms? Yeah, so I think the, the main policy that was picked up a lot outside of China was the national strategy for AI development. It was launched in 2017 and it had this rather dramatic promise of China being the world's leader in AI by 2030. And this was obviously picked up, particularly in the US, as being quite threatening in a way and being quite aggressive, asserting China's dominance. And there was a lot of conversation around that. I think what a lot of that conversation missed and what the point I tried to really emphasize in the book was that underpinning a lot of those grand statements, and some of them are coming from the US as well as China, mm was um, a positioning of education at the very core of those plans as the, as the engine, if you like, of the societal transformation that China were, were attempting to sort of incentivize, to shift China towards um, a, a kind of data-driven economy. And that's really, I think, what the AI policy was about, much more than technology. Yeah. It was much more about uh, economic reform. So there are really a, a cluster of other policies related to education, I think what they probably put forward are, are three key things. So um, encouraging the deployment of kind of AI tools in mainstream state education in classrooms, uh, providing training opportunities, so training new generations of uh, workers to develop and use AI in the labour market, and thirdly, an attempt to to grow the international reputation of, of universities. So I think it was across those two main things that the policy was trying to incentivize uh, uh, education. Which sounds like any policy in most Western countries. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, another big aspect of this hype, apart from the state, is you know, these huge, mysterious Chinese big tech corporations. You know, we talk about firms like Tencent and Alibaba. And I guess in education, there was a lot of hype around ventures like Squirrel AI. So, I mean, how are Chinese companies and startups involved in AI in education? And to what extent is the government kind of controlling and restricting what the private sector can do? Yeah, what, what I tried to pick up on in the book was, was maybe three different ways that the private sector were, were getting involved. So firstly, established big tech companies like some of the ones you mentioned moving into AI. And we've sort of seen this outside of China as well. Mm. Big tech companies seeing education as a market. Um, one of the ones I write about quite a bit in the book is a company called SenseTime, which maybe isn't so well known outside of China, but it's a hugely successful company that um, uh, made itself through com uh, computer vision uh, kind of AI and then sort of began to see itself as a, a new authority in knowledge about AI and positioned itself as a company that was there to train new generations of, of AI developers in, in a space that the, the, the state education sector weren't really, weren't really in. So they famously uh, published a textbook called Fundamentals of Art Artificial Intelligence, and that also picked up a lot of uh, media attention, particularly in the West, because it was aimed at high school students. Right. So it had this element that was um, really focused on training young people and, and, and seeing them as developing further into uh, AI experts. There's also been interestingly established 
private education companies that have moved into tech and moved into AI. Probably the best known example is a company called New Oriental, which um, established itself as, a, as an English training company right back in the 80s when China started to open up to market reforms and people were interested in learning new things and learning English. They quickly turned to tech uh, uh, to establish more markets for their English lessons. And then, of course, as we know from other examples, those kind of platform technologies lead to data, which mm. gives them a, a stake and an interest and a, a power in developing AI. And then we've also seen startups like the Squirrel AI you mentioned, who are, I think, very well known. They're a company that's uh, launched themselves in Shanghai, but have done a very good PR job, I think, of getting themselves known outside of China yeah. and developed a huge market. Um, and one example, I think, of that is that up until recently, they were offering a million dollar prize for AI research, not just education, any kind of AI research. So that gives you an indication of the huge success that a company like that has had in, in a market in China. So on the point about government uh, regulation, that's been quite extreme in recent years. Uh, one of the things I tried to pick up on in the book is a policy called the double reduction, which was principally aimed at, there's a much longer uh, uh, translation of the name, but not worth repeating here, it came to be known as uh, the double reduction. That was aimed at curbing the power of private education companies in China. But what I sort of try to make the claim of in the book is that that rather indirectly then impacted AI development precisely because it was the private companies that were the ones really doing the main AI development and AI innovation. So I think in general, the Chinese government like to see private companies as uh, a route to producing innovation, producing new things, and they're let off the leash a bit to do that. And then regulation is an attempt to sort of bring them back in. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating, isn't it? And as you say, there are huge parallels with what's going on in other countries. But I mean, China's a huge, huge place. And another key aspect of the book is actually to consider geographical differences. And you talk about AI development being concentrated in kind of urban zones and hubs. How is AI and education playing outside of these zones? I mean, is the whole country levelling up and taking on the technology or is it leading to increased divides within the country? I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I tried to touch upon a bit of it in the book. Certainly, there's a lot of people who work on China and in China studies who would see the East-West differences as a really sort of fundamental feature of the country, a really highly developed Eastern coastal region with lots of urban centers and a, a really emerging and established middle class, and then a really very poor Western and rural uh, uh, kind of region. And of course, that has a huge um, influence on where AI is deployed, how much access young people have to AI technologies, how um, many companies and how much infrastructure there is available to establish those kinds of things in, in education. But what's really interesting is that given the double reduction policy that I just mentioned, rural development is now being seen as a sort of politically acceptable way of deploying AI. So mm. one of the examples I give in the book is a, um, a, a product called AI Teacher, developed by a company called Tomorrow Advancing Life. Um, previous to the regulation, they were a tremendously successful private company. But now really the only product they advertise is one that's 
directly intended to teach uh, populations in uh, ethnic minority populations in rural Sichuan province, which is in the west of China, to teach them Han Mandarin. So it's seen as this sort of politically acceptable um, deployment of AI, which is there to uh, raise up the education of a of a of an area that, that's in a socio-economic decline. Which isn't that different to a lot of other countries as well that's using AI as a kind of levelling up function, which is fascinating. One thing that possibly is different is you, you highlight the key role that universities are playing in the development of Chinese AI, the idea of university AI power. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of attention, as you mentioned, on the private companies and the entrepreneurs and this great uh, sense of... Um, creativity in the private sector in China. So I wanted to give a bit of attention to the university. And there is a, there's a central government incentive, really, to develop universities in terms of their international standing. So there's been, been a bit of uh, strategic work to um, try and up the rankings yeah. of certain Chinese universities, increasing publications in high-ranking journals and conferences, um, establishing research centres, which then partner with some of the big tech companies. And there's often been talk of a kind of revolving door between the research space and the commercial space, so using using the, the, the benefits of both of those spaces to sort of drive innovation. So giving the university a real um, important place in that, in that dynamic. There's also been um, efforts, formal efforts, to entice back lots of big name AI researchers, often Chinese AI researchers who have gone on and had careers in the US to entice them back to China to establish these research centers and give them a sense of prominence. And there's also um, an important sense of of the geographical position of universities, often, as I was saying, in these urban centers, close to specialist zones of science and technology development so that Graduates can come out of prestigious universities like Peking and Tsinghua in Beijing, and they're very close to this vibrant startup market and can uh, work in in, in those areas. So, I mean, there's a huge amount going on. But I think, as you say, if you go into your average Chinese classroom, you may not see quite as much AI as we, we, we imagine. But where do you see Chinese influence over AI and education going over the next few years? I mean, you mentioned the area of AI ethics as something that perhaps China has ambitions to take a leading role on. I mean, what else might we be seeing unfold over the next few years? I think what really interests me about the Chinese context is is the creativity and the entrepreneurship. Um, the double reduction um, regulation that I mentioned was really stringent. It essentially stopped any private uh, education company from making profits. But of course, that didn't stop those companies pursuing different creative angles to avoid deregulation. So, for example, Squirt AI were not able to market themselves as a private education company, but what they did almost immediately was start to develop other products. They developed something which they called a a pad, which was essentially a a hardware iPad-type device, which they could then sell in a direct-to-consumer relationship with young people. So they were still providing their AI product, but they were avoiding the regulation of being an AI company. And of course, after the double reduction um, regulation, there was all sorts of other companies coming up with gadgets like desk lamps and pens and all sorts of other things that were 
still um, creatively deploying the AI, but avoiding avoiding the official government regulation. So keeping an eye on that creativity, I think, is always exciting in, in China. And the other thing I want to mention is something I didn't really get to do in the book, because the book was quite high level. It was dealing a lot of with secondary resources, um, because I was unable to get to China because of the, the, the pandemic at the time. And I think what's really missing in that conversation is some of the grass, grassroots innovation, the civil society influences. There's still a civil society in China, despite the influence of the, of the central government and the Communist Party. And there's still social movements. And I think it would be really interesting to see on the ground how those, um, those movements start to influence the way that, that uh, uh, AI is being, de- uh, being developed. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of empirical work to do, talking to students, parents, teachers, ed tech startups, a lot of work. Good luck with it all. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate it.